tell you, I'm excited about Isaiah 9, verse 6. I hope you're excited about Isaiah 9, verse 6 as we unpack it a little deeper this morning uh, in a message entitled, A Message in a Baby. 2013, there was a 107-year-old message in a bottle found on a beach in Canada. Was the oldest message in a bottle found at that particular time. A few years later, 2015, a 108-year-old message in a bottle was found in Germany. Now, the 108-year-old bottle, according to the message inside of it, it had been floating for 108 years, 4 months, and 18 days. Just floating at sea for that long. Wow. The 107-year-old message in a bottle, the interesting thing about it, it's not been opened yet. So, well, how do they know if it's 107 years old? Well, you can see through the glass bottle. It's a glass bottle. It's got an envelope in it with the date it was sent and the name of the sender on the envelope. And the person that found it, he's not going to open the bottle. He said, that's all he needs to know, and that's it. So I asked the question to you on Thursday. I posed it through our slick text, through our 79969 text platform. And I asked you, if you found a 100-year-old message in a bottle, would you open it? If you found a bottle with a message in it, would you open it? And I got a lot of yeses. In fact, I want to read some of the responses that you sent in because they're just fantastic. Check this out. One said 100%. I would open it, and hopefully I found it with a nerdy scientist device. Somebody else said, absolutely, I I would find a bottle opener immediately. Somebody said, yes, but I might have it appraised first. Very wise. One said, of course, I'm kind of nosy, I mean inquisitive. That's a very honest answer. One says, yes, it could be Amelia Earhart letting us know where she crashed her plane. Interesting. One said, yes, and I would sing Message in a Bottle by Sting, while opening it. Another said, yes, 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 as quick as possible. Very enthusiastic. This is one of my favorites here, in a skinny minute. I like that one. Depends on whether or not there was a genie inside. I could relate to this one. I can't find my car keys half the time, much less a message in a bottle. And then this one was, here was one of the no's. There were some no's, but here was one no emphatic no it could have the flu virus from 1918 in it yeah we don't want that can I get an amen on that yeah I thought I would 95 over 95 percent said yes I'd open a bottle with a message in it two percent said no the other percent they just didn't respond so get this picture here's a message from God himself to humanity Over 2,000 years ago, God didn't send a message in a bottle, but he did send a message in a baby. And just like the folks that found the 108-year-old bottle, they opened it immediately. Some people have opened the message in a baby and received that message. And then there's other in the sea of humanity, like the 107-year-old bottle that wasn't open. They received the message. Maybe they haven't opened it. They haven't received it. Some have. Some have not. So Isaiah 9-6 paints this incredible picture of who the Christ is. And I'm going to do my best to use the vocabulary God's given us to at least maybe shine a little. No words can describe our God, obviously. He is above our ways, higher than our ways. But I'm going to give an attempt to it. I pray the Holy Spirit will speak through me. And I pray that we'll all disappear and Christ will appear in this description of him in verse 6 in Isaiah chapter number 9. So here we go. Look at verse 6. If you're there, say, I'm there. All right, here we go. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. 
and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called. Now, when you read that, in the ancient days, a name was very important. A name would sum up a person's character. A name summed up a person's standing reputation. A name summed up a person's nature. So it, it really captured the character of a person. So we're about to see the character of Christ right here. So his name shall be called, look at this, Wonderful Counselor. Somebody say Counselor. counselor. Mighty God. Somebody say God. God. Everlasting Father. Somebody say Father. Father. And Prince of Peace. Somebody say Prince. Father, we love you. We thank you that these names are described to us in a way that we can understand them, in a way that we can relate to them, in a way that we can make application in the year 2020. There are some dads here who are struggling. There are some husbands here who are struggling. There are some moms and wives who are struggling. There's some employers and employees who are struggling. There's some brothers and sisters in Christ who are struggling. There's some folks who have been disappointed and hurt and suffering that are just that, suffering and struggling. And yet you, Lord, have met us where we are. And you have described yourself in these marvelous ways. And I pray today that we will be able to make direct application to where we are as men, women, boys, and girls. We ask it. Holy Spirit, teach us in Jesus' name. And God's people said, all right, here's the takeaway. Write this down somewhere. It's on the bridge. It's on your outline on the bridge. It reads this way. You matter to the Messiah. You matter to the Messiah. I don't care what your past says about you. I don't care what the world says about you. I don't care what cancel culture says about you. I don't care what social media says about you. I don't care what the world says about you. The Bible says that you matter to the Messiah. You matter to the Messiah. And we matter to the Messiah. And Isaiah 9, 6 really highlights this incredible truth with four names. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So I want to take these names and make four applications that it are proof that you matter to Messiah. So here's the first application. When you look at the word Wonderful Counselor, one point of application is this, and it's number one on your outline. The Messiah speaks your language. The Messiah has come to speak your language. Wonderful counselor. You take those two words, wonderful and counselor, break them down. Wonderful just simply means that. Astonishing, marvelous. It, it means separate from the ordinary. It means uh, extraordinary. It carries the idea of one who acts wonderfully in a wonderful way. One who who acts in a way that is marvelous and inspires wonder. It is a wondrously marvelous event manifesting a supernatural act from, a, from the divine. It is wonderful. And then the word counselor simply means advisor or ideal ruler. Wonderful counselor. A wonder of a counselor. So what does that mean? It means that this baby in a manger... That Jesus is reliable. 
(laughs) That he is our reliable counselor. That if you will come to him by grace alone, through faith alone, if you'll come to him, he will never lead you astray. He's never going to give you bad advice. He's never going to give you bad counsel. And there are people who make a living giving bad counsel, right? (laughs) There's people who really do make a living. They listen to people and they give them advice. They listen to people, they give them counsel. They listen to people and they pastor. They listen to people and they're doctors. They're consultants. But even counselors need counseling. Even advisors need advice. Even doctors need to be doctored. Even pastors need to be pastored. Even pastors need to be pastored. I'll amen that. Amen, amen. Even even consultants need, from time to time, consultants. But but here's the beauty about Messiah. He doesn't seek counsel. He doesn't seek advice. He doesn't need to. He is infinitely wise. Isaiah says this about Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding rest upon him. The Spirit of counsel and might rest upon him. He doesn't have to go anywhere else to get counsel or advice. He is the person of wisdom. Wisdom is a person. We don't think of it that way, but wisdom is a person. And that person's name is Jesus. Paul says it like this, that in Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus became to us wisdom from God. So Christ Jesus is from God, and he's wisdom to us. He is a person. Wisdom is a person. Meanwhile, you say, well, why does that even matter? What, what, why is this important? Life is not easy. Can anybody testify to that? Can anybody say life is hard, that life can stink from time to time? Anybody? Just me? It's not easy, is it? No, it's not easy. 2020 has taught us that some people would rather stop living because they're afraid of dying. And it's not easy. I'm not suggesting it's easy. We're in a broken world with suffering and separation and selfishness and sickness and sin. That's where we live. We're in the midst of this. And Jesus knew that all along. I don't know if it's ever occurred to you, but nothing has ever occurred to Jesus. He knows all things. He knew exactly what 2020 was going to be like. That's why he told his disciples, I promise I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit as comforter. As the helper. Now, I'm not a genius, okay? I'm not the brightest person in the room. But when I hear that Jesus has promised to send the comforter to us, that seems to suggest... We're going to need to be comforted. That seems to suggest that this life is going to be difficult. And it's going to be hard. And it's going to stink. And we need help. And we need the comforter. And Jesus knew that. So he promised to send this one, the Holy Spirit, God, the Holy Spirit, who is comforter. And I know we have a lot of things that we hear. A lot of voices. And we don't know what to believe. We don't know what not to believe. We don't know what's true and what's not true. We don't know what to buy into, what not to buy into. We, we don't know what to do sometimes and what not to do. We don't know what to think and what not to think. It's difficult. There's all, we're being bombarded with all these voices. And in the valley of so many voices, we need a voice of truth. 
We need somebody to speak truth. And Jesus is the wonderful counselor, and he speaks truth to us. Now, we can try to self-impose a ban on sin and suffering and sickness and separation and selfishness, kind of like LSU put a self-imposing ban on postseason football this year. But that doesn't work. Self-imposing some kind of ban against suffering will not work. That's why we have Jesus, the wonderful counselor. We need him. If you've ever read the Gospels, I'm sure journaling through the Gospels, you probably noticed that Jesus just knew what to say and he knew what not to say. You ever notice that? And he knew who to say it to and he knew who not to say it to. And he knew how to say it and he knew how not to say it. You ever notice that? He knew when to say it and when not to say it. I'm not always going to speak your language, and you're not always going to speak my language. That's why we live in a world of confusion. I'm not always going to speak yours, and you're not always going to speak mine. You know, Tanya's, she makes this taco soup in this cast iron skillet that is so good, it makes this Southern Baptist pastor speak in other tongues. I mean, it's good. But I'm not always going to speak your language. But there is one, the wonderful counselor, who will always, he always, Jesus, when he walked this earth, spoke the language of the people with whom he spoke. He knew what to say to the fishermen. He knew what to say to the tax collectors. He knew what to say to Nicodemus, which was different than what he said to the Samaritan woman, which was different than what he said to the thief on the cross, which is different than what he said to children, and different than what he said to the crowds, and different than what he said to the centurion, and different than what he said to the lepers, and different than what he said to Pilate. He knew what to say, when to say it, how to say it, and who to say it to. He will never lead you astray. You can trust him. He's the wonderful counselor. He's a person, a real person. Becky was an agnostic. And she just could not see how finite, limited human beings could know the infinite God. How is that possible? And this is what she wrote. I'm going to quote what she wrote here. One sunny day, I noticed that some ants were busy building a mound, and I began to redirect their steps with twigs and leaves, and I thought, this is like being God. I'm redirecting their steps. They don't even know I'm doing it. And at one point, two ants crawled on Becky's hand. So Becky has two ants on her hand. And she thought to herself, what if one of these ants said to the other, do you believe in Becky? Do you believe Becky exists? And imagine the other ant saying, don't be ridiculous. Becky is a myth, a fairy tale. She thought, how comical. I can crush them in my hand with little to no effort or just blow them out of my hand with little to no effort. But what if the other ant said, I absolutely do believe that Becky exists. How is this going to be resolved? One ant, both of them are on Becky's hand. One believes Becky exists, one doesn't. And Becky thought to herself, the only way this is ever going to be resolved is I have to become an ant. I have to speak their language. I have to enter into their reality and speak their language. And then she wrote, this is what she wrote. I just solved my own problem of how can humans know God. God became one of us and spoke our language. He speaks our language. That's what he does. Listen, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you've been born again, you became a believer not because you're smarter, not because you're better, 
not because you're brighter or wiser or greater, not because you're privileged or spiritual. The only reason you became a believer is because your life has been invaded by the grace of God in the person of Jesus. He has revealed himself to you. He has opened up your heart, speaking your language, giving you the ability to believe, granting you the gift of repentance and faith to believe and obey his word. He speaks our language. This is proof that we matter to him. Here's the second name, Mighty God. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. This says to us, the application is, the Messiah came to be your hero. He came to be your hero. If you look in the Hebrew at the word mighty, it is translated as hero, champion, valiant warrior. This is who our God is. Martin Luther even took this phrase mighty God and he said, he rendered it as divine hero. That God is our hero. (laughs) That this baby in a manger, who by the way doesn't stay in the manger we got to get the baby out of the manger. He lived a life we couldn't live. He died a death. We all should have died. He was buried. He was raised to life. And he rescued us through this good news of the gospel. He is our hero. He is our divine hero, our mighty, mighty hero. The word mighty means powerful, valiant warrior. God here speaks of deity. Think about it like this. This baby in a manger is not just the son of God. This baby is God the Son. The ancient creeds read this way that this baby in a manger is the very God of very God. That can be said of no other human being. He is our mighty hero. Much more than Superman and Batman and Spider Man and Ant Man and Aquaman, the God Man, this baby in a manger, is our hero. I looked up at the definition of hero, I found couple of definitions. One of them was the principal character in a story, play, or film. The main character is the hero, right? And we look at the nativity. We look at the Christmas nativity, and we see the scripture tells us about Mary and Joseph and the baby wrapped in swallowing cloths and lying in a manger and the shepherds coming and And then we set up nativity scenes. And maybe uh, your nativity, it's a debate that's every year. Who should be there? Who shouldn't be there? And maybe your nativity has some people that maybe biblically shouldn't be there. Maybe your nativity has some people that should be there biblically. And we we, we can fuss and fight over that. Let, Let me say it like this. If you've got the wise men at your nativity scene, then I want to have Simeon and Anna at my nativity scene. Because Simeon and Anna saw Jesus... Long before the wise men ever saw him, sure, they saw him at the temple when Mary and Joseph took him there, but they saw him when he was a baby. Right? And we can fuss and fight over who's supposed to be there and who's not supposed to be there. I'm not suggesting Simeon and Annas should be there. They shouldn't, but here's the point. We lose sight of the hero. We get so focused on the other characters in the, in the Christmas account, according to Scripture, we lose sight of the hero. Mary is not the hero of the nativity. Joseph is not the hero. The angels are not the hero. The shepherds are not the heroes. The wise men aren't the heroes. Simeon and Anna aren't the heroes. The grass-fed cattle is not the heroes. The free-range chickens are not the heroes. The hero is the baby in that manger. He is mighty God. He is divine hero. He is the principal character 
of God's redemptive story. We just sang it. God and man reconciled. How does that happen? The wonderful counselor, mighty God. Another definition of hero is this. A person who has performed a heroic act. Listen, I don't know of any other act more heroic than the act of laying down your life, not for your friends, but for your enemies. There is no other heroic act more heroic than that. That he came to this earth, humbled himself into this flesh, suffered as we all have, yet without sin. Died on the cross, breathed his last, was buried and raised to life. Man, hands down, my my favorite Christmas present as a child, as a kid, was in 1983. 1983 Christmas, I I got a a Star Wars Ewok Village playset. My favorite Christmas present of all time as a child. My Star Wars, my hero at that time was Han Solo. Uh, Loved it. But, but, you know, one thing that's always confused me about the Star Wars saga are the Stormtroopers' armor. It's made out of recycled plastic. Like the Empire, they can engineer a Death Star, they can build a Death Star, and the best they can do is give these guys recycled plastic for armor? I mean, what has that ever protected them from? Maybe a sunburn or poison ivy? I'm so grateful that we have a real hero. His name is Jesus, and he does things like change water to wine. He raises the dead. He gives sight to the blind. He makes the lame walk. He opens the heart of rebellious sinners and grants them the gift of repentance. He goes to the cross, or he went to the cross, and he died for our sins, and he was raised to life. He's forgiven our sin. He's given us hope, and he's assigned us not recycled plastic for armor, but the whole armor of God. He is a valiant warrior. He's our mighty God. He's our divine hero. That's who he is. And we need a hero. One thing I love about the scripture is it never promotes independent spiritual strength. It never says, Sam, you have to be independently, spiritually strong in Sam. Never says that. It says, Sam, you are weak, but I am strong. The Lord says, I am strong. I'm so grateful it promotes weakness because who among us is not weak? Who among us does what we ought to do? Who among us says what we ought to say? Isn't it wonderful to know that there is a strong, valiant warrior, a mighty God who is all-powerful? You know, Jesus never rescues reluctantly, nor does he rescue anyone who is reluctant. He doesn't say, if you'll clean your mess up, I'll rescue you. He says, I'm going to rescue you in the midst of your mess if you'll turn to me, trust me. Every other world religion, every world religion, every religion, all, all religions do is they teach swimming lessons to people who've already drowned. It's all they're doing. But Jesus rescues those who are drowning. 
He himself is the mighty God, our divine hero, and we need a hero. I read this this week. Dolly Parton saved the life of a child on set of her new Christmas movie. Of course she did. What does Dolly, what is she not able to do? Right? Of course she did. But this is our true hero. Jesus is not a hero on this movie set or that movie set or this film or that play. He is the hero of humanity. He's our divine hero. I love this name. Uh, Everlasting Father. We see Wonderful Counselor. We see Mighty God. Here's the third one. Everlasting Father. Here's the application. The Messiah cares for you. He loves you like a father forever. Everlasting means forever. And not only does it mean forever, it means forever and ever. It means eternal. It means continual always. Like continuing future always. It means perpetuity. Unlimited duration of time. Before time, beyond time, above time. Is this baby in a manger? He is before all things. Nothing is before him. Nothing is after him. He's the first, the last, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. This baby in a manger. And listen, folks, dying men, women, boys and girls like you and me, we need an undying Christ. We need an undying hero. We need an undying Messiah. And Jesus is just that. Yes, he died, but he defeated death. He killed death, never to die again. He's undying. He's everlasting. And then it says father. Wow, that's a, that's a pregnant word, father. It can mean so much to so many people. Some positive, some negative. Some good, some bad. But here, this is not directly, uh, this isn't talking about the Trinity specifically here. It's speaking of the character of this child. That he is the, the father of eternity. That he is the father forever he is like his character is like a father from beginning to end Uh, he has no end he is the beginning and the end you know dads will eventually die maybe your dad's still living maybe your dad's not still living dads eventually die but Jesus again he's never going to die again He died, but he's alive forevermore. He is everlasting. He's eternal. And he's going to care for you for all of eternity. He's going to love you for all of eternity. He's going to be there for you for all of eternity. He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. Some of you have dads who have been abusive, maybe are abusive, have abandoned you, have been absent. Jesus is not like that. He's like a good father forever. His character is such that he cares and he loves forever. Ever and ever and ever. And here's the beauty of that. The cry of the human heart is to be loved. If you ask anybody, what's the cry of your heart? I just want to be loved. And then I want somebody who loves me. What happens if they find out how I really am? What if they really find out who I am? Will they still love me? The answer is yes. And the reason is because of the everlasting Father. 
He loves you and not just when you do things to please Him. He loves you forever. You know, the world says this. The the world is very clear. About dads, about fathers. We can listen to what the world says about them. But we need to listen to what the Word of God says that Jesus is our everlasting, He is like our everlasting Father. This is who He is. I read a, a lyric, I don't know if it was from a poem, I don't know if it was from a song, but I read this lyric the other day. It was about preachers. And it said, he sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He'll keep on preaching anyway. It's his calling, for goodness sake. So I see when you fall asleep in here in this room. I see when you're awake in this room. I do make notes in the margin (laughs) of who's sleeping and who's not. But I, I don't, again... I don't see you every day of your life. Your your mom and dad don't see you every moment of your life. Jesus does, and he loves you anyway. He knows you better than anybody, and he loves you anyway. He is the everlasting Father. I love these names. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Here's the last one, Prince of Peace. Fourth application here that proves that you matter to Messiah is this. The Messiah gives peace to his people. He gives us peace. Again, prince of peace. When I think of the word prince, which can mean chief or ruler or leader or captain or prince, I think of that. When you think of those words, you think of a person, right? There's a prince. He's a person. There's a chief. There's a leader. There's a captain. You think of a person. Yes, peace is a person. (laughs) Peace is not the absence of of the coronavirus. Peace is the presence of Christ Jesus. Peace is a person. And that's what peace is all about. Jesus comes into our mess as Messiah and he gives us peace. He brings peace with him. He leaves peace behind. He is peace. He is completeness. He is satisfaction. That's what peace means. Wholeness, completeness, satisfaction. That's what peace means. That's who Jesus is. In fact, Jesus said this about himself. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Paul says this of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through a person, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Paul says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in a person, in Christ Jesus. Peace is a person. At the Christmas account, Luke chapter 2, we have the angels saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is well pleased. In other words, the Christmas message is not that Jesus has come to bring peace to the earth, to all people on earth. Peace from Christ is available to everybody on earth. But not everybody on earth is going to open the 2,000-year-old message in a baby. Not everybody's going to receive it. Some are going to reject it. 
Others are going to receive it. They're going to open it. It's going to change them. Jesus even said in one place in the New Testament, I've not come to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword. Why? Because the gospel divides. It divides families. It divides communities. It divides neighborhoods. It divides countries. It divides nations. It divides kingdoms. Because, again, some people will open the 2,000-year-old message in a baby, and some people won't. Some people will trust Christ as Savior, and some won't. So the peace that Jesus brings is for those on whom he, with whom he is well pleased. And those are people who have put their faith and trust in Christ alone, by grace alone. Those are the ones who have peace from the Prince of Peace. The second time Jesus comes, he's bringing a kingdom of peace. He is. The first time, he did not come to bring a kingdom of peace and set it up right now. He came to bring peace to those who trust in him. What evidence do you need? Then just look around. You, you tell me. Do you see peace when you look around? Is there peace in your family? Is there peace in your marriage? Is there peace in the church? We've got some folks in the church that are not at peace with one another. Is there peace in your neighborhood? In our culture today, in the sea of humanity, is there peace? We look around and we wonder, is there ever going to be peace? Will peace ever exist? I mean, think about those family battles that you've had. And some of them you've won. And my question is, is is that family battle you won more important than the family relationship that you lost? The only way that can be rectified is through the Prince of Peace. He not only gives us peace with God and the peace of God, he gives us the ability to be at peace with each other. And oh, how we need that. The world tells us that Santa gives you what you want when you're good. The Bible, the gospel, says that Jesus gives you what you need when you're bad. That's the gospel. No one's good, not one. Yet Jesus gives us what we need when none of us are good. He's the prince of peace. I read a fascinating article on Monday, December 7, 2020, it was posted just this Monday from a Gallup uh, poll. And the Gallup poll, the main focus of it was, it was measuring the percentage of Americans who say their mental health is excellent. And they were comparing 2019's numbers with 2020's numbers. Now, I don't know if um, you've noticed, but something's happened in 2020, a little out of the ordinary. Have you noticed that? So logic would tell us, hey, the mental health of folks are going to be down in 2020 compared to 2019. Just logically, that would make sense, right? And so this poll had 19 categories. It had seven groups with categories under each one. I'm going to read the groups and the categories just to give you a feel of who was polled. Then I'm going to give you the results. So one one group was gender. You had male and female. One group was religious affiliate or Political affiliation, you had Republican, Independent, Democrat. One was uh, church attendance, weekly, monthly, or seldom, never. Race was another group, white, non-white. Age group, and they had four different age groups, 18 to 29, 30 to 50, 50 to 64, 65 plus. Marital status was a group, they had married, not married. Household income, under 40, 40 to 100, and then over 100. So 19 categories altogether. 
Of those 19 categories that were polled and asked the question, is your mental health, how is your mental health wellness in 2020 compared to 2019? Of those 19, only one category reported that their mental health wellness improved in 2020 over 2019. Over one category of the 19 said that, yes, my mental health wellness is better in 2020 than it was in 2019. That one category, weekly church attenders. What's most fascinating is the title of the article was this, Americans' Mental Health Ratings Sink to New Low. The whole article was about how mental health has tanked this year. Tanked! And the only group, the only category among all those that have tanked, one of them improved. Weekly church attenders. Ed Stetzer said it like this, The church is not the center of God's plan. Jesus is the center of God's plan. But the church is central to God's plan. Some of y'all, probably most all of us, go to work online or in person, go to school online or in person, we go on vacation, we go to Walmart, we go to uh, either in line or on person to Walmart, we go to the grocery store either online or in person or have it uh, delivered or we go to the movies, either stream it or go to the theater or we go to Christmas parties or house parties or we go to the Home Depot. Some of you Home Depot is a second home, right? Some of you go to protests, rallies, riots, sporting events, games, etc., etc., etc. But you hadn't been to church since March. You know, one of the groups, one of the groups that tanked the most was the seldom to never attend church. One that tanked the most. Why, why is this important? We offer online worship every week. There's no excuse. Wherever you are on planet Earth, you can worship with us every week online. So there's no reason why you shouldn't be in a church attender every week, either in person or online. Either one of them is a way for you to attend worship with our church. That should be a priority. If nothing else, if it doesn't do anything else for you, according to this study, it may improve your mental health. It may. And why is that important? Do you recall when Jesus was resurrected and the disciples are terrified? Because he'd just been crucified and they're just out of their minds terrified. They're hiding in an upper room. They're fearful of the Jews. They're huddled up there in the upper room. Jesus comes on that first day of the week. He joins them and the first thing he says to them is what? Peace be with you. When we gather either online or in person, the Holy Spirit grants peace to his people. Individually, corporately, he brings peace. In Ireland, there's a city that's divided. Part of it is Catholic. Part of it is Protestant. Protestants are on the East Bank and Catholics on the West Bank. They can't even agree on the name of the town. They have two different names for the town, Derry and Londonderry. And they don't ever mingle. They're just completely divided. So they decided they needed to have some neutral ground. So they built a bridge in between the east and the west bank. And they call it the Bridge of Peace. 
And they can mingle on that bridge. The only place they can mingle, they can jog or ride their bikes or whatever they want to do. They can do that Catholic and Protestant together on that bridge. Why do they do that? Because they know they have this desire to be whole and complete and satisfied. There, there's a peace that is missing in your life, and it is the person of peace. It's Jesus. We don't need to build a bridge of peace. We have the Prince of Peace. He's a person, and he has come to bring peace with him. And all of this wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, is proof that you matter to the Messiah. Some of you need to know today you are the apple of the Almighty's eye. You need to know that. You need to know you were bought at a price by the bridegroom. He didn't do that because he didn't have anything else to do. You need to know that you are cared for by the Comforter. You are delighted in by the Divine. You are essential to the Everlasting Father. You've been befriended by the friend of sinners. In Revelation chapter 1, Jesus calls the church the golden lampstands. Why? Because you're gold to God. You matter to the Messiah. You are held dear by the head of the church. You are important to Emmanuel. You are the joy set before Jesus as he endured the cross. You are loved first by the first and the last. You are made in the image of the Imago Dei. Why? Because you matter to the Messiah. You are pursued and prized by the Prince of Peace. You are redeemable to the Redeemer. You are savable to the Savior. By the way, you are wanted by the one who said, I'm the way. You are treasured by the one who said, I'm the truth. And you're loved by him alone who said, I'm the life. There's no question about it, church. You matter to Messiah. Here's the question. Does Messiah matter to you?